0: Hey, everyone. Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacks.com. Now on with the show. Are we good? All right three two one let's jam you were waiting for that you were waiting for that intro weren't you buddy (laughs) i almost jumped into it myself hello and welcome everyone i'm Corey hofstein and this is flirting with models the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry
1: regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information,
0: visit thinknewfound.com. Jason Buck is the co-founder and CIO of Mutiny Funds and maybe one of the most interesting people I know. Jason made, and subsequently lost, a small fortune in commercial real estate in the 2008 crash. This ego-destroying event, as he puts it, was the catalyst for him to completely rethink the idea of resiliency, both in business and investments. Jason spent the better part of the 2010s developing the Cockroach Portfolio, a modern take on Harry Brown's permanent portfolio. A quarter stocks, a quarter bonds, a quarter CTA, and a quarter long volatility. Jason has designed the portfolio to provide all weather returns with the possibility of serving as an entrepreneurial hedge. We discuss the value of tail hedging, tail hedges versus long volatility trades, the limits of manager diversification and managed futures versus static commodity positions. As a final note, this episode was recorded live at the Exchange ETF event in Miami. Enjoy. Jason Buck, welcome to the show. Long time coming here. I feel like we've collaborated on just about everything but this show. Sorry, I haven't had you on earlier. It's unacceptable.
1: And hopefully my voice is going to hold up. It's been a crazy few weeks here in Miami.
0: Yeah, this is a special episode, season opener, as well as recording live at Exchange ETF in Miami. You've been here for a week already. You have the rest of the week to go of events. So halfway through. Water and lemons for. That's right. All right, look, you know me very well. I know you know how I'm going to start this. I'm a big believer that formative experiences are ultimately instructive and terms of how someone ends up investing in their life. And I usually get most of my guests to start the podcast with their background. Your background could be an entire episode itself. We went out for drinks last night. You left. The person I was with said he really is the most interesting man alive. So I just want to give the audience a flavor of that. I don't think we can get through the full Jason Buck backstory, but it's sort of as my out of left field question to set the stage for this conversation, tell me about your experience hustling rugs in istanbul jumping right in so when
1: i was in university i went to college of charleston i played soccer there and in my spare time i worked in a mediterranean restaurant and the owner of the mediterranean restaurant was a guy from istanbul turkey and he used to tell me stories in the late 90s about what it was like growing up in istanbul and being a street hustler and i decided to take some time off from the soccer team take some time off from school and he suggested I go to Istanbul and meet up with his friends. And Now, granted, this is the late 90s. So, like, I signed up for a hotmail address while I was there. Like, my poor parents have been dealing with me my whole life. But, you know, I would call home, like, once a month for, like, a few minutes. Like, they had no idea where their son was. And, like, even when I arrived there, I didn't even know who I was meeting or what. These guys picked me up at the airport. They're very kind to me. But basically, the setup was, if anybody's ever been to Istanbul, when you're in Sultanahmet, the old historical district, everybody on the street is like, hello, my friend, come in have some tea. And they're basically trying to sell you primarily Turkish rugs, but kind of anything. And so it just happened that the guy I worked for sold Turkish rugs. And me at the time, being a blonde Midwestern kid, a lot of the people coming off the cruise ship immediately trusted me and more than any of the locals. And so I'm extremely introverted, as you kind of know, but don't believe me. But it was really good for me to get out of my shell. And basically I would hustle on the streets and we would sell Turkish rugs to American tourists after they spent a few hours having tea. And then you would spend months shipping that carpet back to the U.S. Like they had no idea. Like the way we live now is like incomprehensible to me back then. Like it's amazing to think about. But it's not just Turkish rugs. If like they wanted a leather coat, a bespoke leather coat, I knew a guy. I knew a Russian guy. <laughs> if they wanted a great meal, I knew the best restaurants in town. So I would take him to the restaurant. I'd circle the block. I'd come back and the owner would peel me off a few lira for bringing them to his restaurant. So it's just a completely different way of living. And at one point, you know, I had like a three-bedroom house with maids, cooks, everything. And it was like $300 a month. But, you know, some days the power wouldn't work.
0: So it was definitely a a unique experience. It was like a full cultural arbitrage for you. You get to lean into the edge you had in a foreign country and make some money out of it. Yeah, I think we talk about often all life is either arbitrage or optionality. You know, that's what we try to do. I know your favorite phrase is everything is an option. It's absolutely your favorite thing to talk about. We'll get into that, I'm sure. Look, today you run Mutiny Funds and your flagship strategy is the Cockroach Portfolio. I know a big catalyst for you for eventually launching Mutiny itself, as well as this fund in particular, was your entrepreneurial experience in 2008. So you called it to me in the past, a quote, ego-destroying process. Walk me through the experience.
1: What's interesting to me, too, is even you start with 2008. And for people that work in finance, that's the GFC is 2008. But for those of us that were in real estate or commercial real estate, I actually started in 2007. So it's always interesting to think about that two-year period where you really saw the cracks in real estate initially. So I was a commercial real estate developer and did a lot of that King Street corridor in Charleston during the time. And what I found was interesting is I started to see a little bit of cracks on the wall. Like I would notice you know, if I'm doing a building and people put up their deposit to buy a condo and I'm rehabbing and building out the condo. And then seeing the loans they were getting at the time with some of like the more nefarious lenders, like the Washington Mew, the Countrywides and all that. And also see them start to get denied their applications. I started to get worried. And what was interesting to me at the time, I, you know, I was in my mid twenties, so I didn't know better. So I went to some of the older developers in the area, got like six of them together all over the age of 60. And I asked them, I was like, look, I don't have context. Are you guys worried at all? And to a man, they said, this time's different. So... (laughs) What I unfortunately learned in hindsight is that commercial real estate developers are preternaturally the most optimistic people in the world. And so these guys, you know, what do they care? They're going to declare bankruptcy and then they're going to start over again. These guys have been through multiple cycles. And so it was really a painful experience for me in the sense that you start making money that young or you start developing properties that young and everything, and everybody starts treating you like you're special. And unfortunately, you start to believe it. And then you realize that you are just a rising tide lifts all boats and you're just lucky. But then when it all comes collapsing down and now you're in your late 20s and you got certain to a, you got used to a high quality lifestyle. Now you think you're the lowest of the low and the world's worst person. And part of that is like when you lose money for friends and family, it's really catastrophic. You feel like you're in the fetal position on the floor every day. It's one thing to lose your own money and you know what you're getting into, but it's about losing the family and friends money. And then to add insult to injury, this is how I started learning about options was I actually knew who the worst mortgage providers were from my business and I started shorting them, but I started buying put options. But then... I was buying short-term, deep-out-of-the-money-put options, so I actually managed to lose money shorting the biggest housing bubble in American history. And that takes a special set of skills, but what you learn is you got to learn about your options, Greeks, your second-order derivatives. It's not just about the Delta movement. You know, what's your Vega, what's your Theta, what's your Gamma? And that forces you to learn those things through an incredibly painful process.
0: I'm glad you you brought that up because I knew that about your background. It was an interesting foray into trading options, one of which I, I think probably many Retail investors are probably learning over the last two years that you can be directionally right. And if you're wrong on the value of the option or the implied volatility priced in, it can be a bad trade. So something you learned early, fortunately. Well, we hope I learned
1: it early, but I actually didn't. Luckily, my business partner is one of those people that can learn from others' mistakes. I apparently not only don't learn from my own, but I have to make multiple mistakes until I finally learn from them. And in 99, I was YOLO trading tech stocks. And ran up like $2,000 into $100,000. I thought I was the richest man in the world. This was just the start of my career. I was going to be a billionaire by 30. And that all came crashing down, obviously, after 99. So apparently, I didn't learn my lesson enough. You know, you got to touch several stoves before I actually learn anything.
0: Well, so going back to your experience as a commercial real estate developer, you talked about sort of making those high highs and then low lows. Curious from your memory, what sort of the highest high was And where was the lowest low for you? You know, in business,
1: you and I talk about business a lot. And there's not really that high a highs in business. It's like you're just trying to hit singles every day and then aggregate up enough singles that then it looks like you're an overnight success until you hit that J curve. But it's a lot of like incremental progress around the way that doesn't look like progress. To me, like the highs were like some of the buildings I bought and the way I transformed those buildings. is like I suck at art. I can't draw, I can't paint, I can't sculpt. But to me, business entrepreneurship is an art form. And commercial real estate to me was a really interesting one is that I can craft buildings and cityscapes that people will hopefully use for centuries, especially if you think about Charleston, people have been using that city for centuries. And so the more pride or highs I got from that was creating beautiful buildings with beautiful spaces for people to interact with. And I took great pride in doing a lot of the interior design, those sorts of things. And then the lows, like I said, is like when everything you think you are gets pulled out from under you, I I quit it to maybe like the first time both of us felt an earthquake in California. You know, as soon as the solid ground becomes a wave, it throws into a lot of existential questions of what reality is. And so part of mine, that's the ego destroying process is I thought I was building a business and a long-term thing. Turned out I was taking on too much leverage and I was just lucky and I was riding the same wave everybody else was. And so it really makes you question your existence, who you are, what you're good at, are you going to recover from this? And I think for me, that was a
0: multi-year process. I know you did some travel to South America, sort of rethinking what you wanted to do, but ultimately it culminated in this idea of a portfolio designed for an entrepreneur's balance sheet. And I want to spend a lot of this podcast talking about that portfolio. This is an investment podcast in theory, though I'm sure, as I said, we could go on for hours just with your many stories. Connect the dots for me, 2008, business falls apart. How do you start getting this idea of what would a portfolio look like if you were building it for resiliency as an entrepreneur? So part of it, like
1: I may not have been able to learn from mistakes, but I can learn from tremendous pain. And that pain was so large, I figured there had to be a way to not experience that pain again. And part of that was like, there has to be a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk. I knew no matter what, I was always going to be an entrepreneur, whether I liked it or not like that's just in my personality so to be better going forward i have to figure out a way to hedge entrepreneurial risk so this doesn't happen to me again and a lot of people say that's not possible and i like when things are impossible it just makes me want to dive in you know head first and so I started to go down this road of starting with options because I did so poorly in options in 2008, 2009, is to teach myself all about options trading, all the Greeks, figuring all that stuff out to figure out like, what would it be like to hedge with options? Other things I started working on were the intermarket spread between VIX and E-minis and figuring out what is it like to have negatively correlated assets and rebalance? You know, I'm a big fan of Shan's demon, but you and I like to argue about there's no such thing as a rebalancing premium, but it's maybe a diversification premium, had tip to Corey Hofstein. So it's just kind of starting to start to put all of these ideas together and then what would look like. And then in conjunction, I was you know, calling the guys at RCM Alternatives out of Chicago, asking them a lot of questions about how do you build a broadly diversified portfolio in futures and options space? Is there capital efficiency there? What's the vehicle I need? Is it a commodity pool operation? Is it a CTA operation? And starting to put everything together kind of in conjunction and I was tracking and following all the other long volatility, terrorist risk managers, learning everything I could about the space. But the idea was, in general, is, as my partner, Taylor Pearson, has described, is we run an entrepreneurial put option. And the idea is, if I can hedge out some of your risk as an entrepreneur, and obviously you're going to take basis risk. But I would argue when liquidity cascades happen, TM Corey Hofstein, is that the liquidity is represented the S&P 500 first. It's the most liquid market in the world. So in a 2008-like scenario or March 2020, you're going to see some sharp liquidity cascades or crashes in the S&P 500. So if you're buying some tail risk protection on the S&P 500, that convex cash position is then going to put an enormous amount of cash on your balance sheet to either buy up your competitors for pennies on the dollar, buy up some real estate pennies on the dollar, or make payroll for an extended period of time. And that combination over time can help you dramatically outcompete your competitors. So to me, it's a superpower for entrepreneurs to de-risk some of their book a little bit so they can be much more aggressive idiosyncratically as an entrepreneur. Now, to your point, though, there's a difference between their idiosyncratic risk on an entrepreneur and then the market beta risk. But that's about as close as we could possibly get, especially if you have these global liquidity events. And when liquidity dries up, it doesn't matter how good you are
0: as an entrepreneur. Credit dries up. You're absolutely screwed. So let's Back up 30,000 feet, talk about the cockroach portfolio itself. What does sort of the top down composition or asset allocation look like? I've always been a big fan
1: of Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, which he came up with in the early 70s. But the idea of broad portfolio diversification goes all the way back to the Talmud. But the idea of Harry Brown's permanent portfolio is the four quadrant model that everything's on the axis of growth or inflation, right? We're either in growth or recession or inflation or deflation. As you know, Ray Dalio copied that model and just created risk parity by leveraging up the bond side, still kept in commodities. But that's the kind of evolution of that idea. But when I think about Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, it's like, how do you build a portfolio if you don't know what the future is? And that, speaking of like losing all that hubris in my youth, hopefully, and being much more realistic is I can't predict the future. I don't have a crystal ball. And I don't believe anybody else does either. So what do you do with your savings if you want to build a portfolio that way? And that's why Harry Brown's permanent portfolio appealed to me, because it's robust to kind of any macro environment. Now, granted, they're like Venn diagrams, they cross over. So Harry Brown initially was equal weights to stocks, bonds, cash, and gold. And that took care of your growth, your inflation, your deflation, and your recession. But I feel like if Harry Brown was alive today, he would use some much more interesting or advanced portfolio techniques. So we still use global stocks for our stock bucket for that growth. But in recessions, we believe that cash may not be good enough. So we use this convex cash position that we can get from long volatility and tail risk. And we'll get into, you know, we use an ensemble of managers to manage the path dependencies of that position. But I think cash isn't quite good enough for when you have those extreme liquidity cascades. As we become more financialized, I think you need something that's structurally negatively correlated that has much more convexity to it. Then on the deflation or disinflationary side, we still use global bonds or income, which is what you want in those environments. And then to offset that risk, Harry Brown used gold for inflation. I don't think that quite works. Like gold works over a millennium, but in any intervening years, it doesn't work well. I've also been studying gold for decades. You can maybe tell me what it is. I still don't understand what gold is. But we use commodity trend advisors and we use an ensemble approach to there as well, just because we believe they're going to have a higher beta to inflation. And that also helps offset the bond risk. So at a high level, if you think about it, I think they're very linear instruments during risk on that are stocks and bonds, and then we use very convex instruments during risk-off for long volatility, TRS risk, and commodity trend advisors. Put simply, we think about it as offense plus defense wins investing championships. We think most portfolios are missing the defensive side, so that's
0: what we try to specialize in. So if I were to, again, look at that 30,000-foot view, it would be roughly quarter stocks, quarter bonds, quarter CTA, and a quarter convex cash, which we'll get into. I guess let's dive into that. So you've replaced Harry Brown's cash with long volatility and tail hedges. Let's just start with how are you defining long volatility and tail hedging?
1: It's a great question, because I'm not sure anybody's like perfectly defined it. If you talk to some options or derivatives managers, they would argue that long volatility is long vega. I wouldn't necessarily argue that. I think that we maybe should start with tail risk. And the idea with tail risk is like an insurance you would have on your house or anything else is you're basically buying deep out of the money puts they're structurally negatively correlated with like an attachment point of say negative 20%, Like, right? That's your deductible. As soon as the market drops to there, you should have some convex returns and that helps truncate your left's tails and reduces the volatility to tax your portfolio. The problem or issue, not that there necessarily is one, with tail risk is like you have a permanent bleed. Just like the premiums you pay for life insurance, car insurance, house insurance, every quarter you have to write that check. Then people don't like that negative line item over an entire risk on period if it lasts a decade or more. So that's kind of classical tail risk. I define long volatility is you move away from that deterministic rolling put position. You can trade much more opportunistically on both tails, both up and down. And the way we look at those managers is like they're trying to time when you're going to have a black swan event, even though it's unpredictable. To think about forest fires, you can know you know, what the wind speed is. How dry is the kindling on the ground? When was the last rain cycle? Is there power lines in the area? You start putting all those things together to create your algos, just to try to time these markets on both tails. And that's to me is much more long volatility is, is tried to affect how you choose. But then at the same time, you have to think about it. We always think about this triangle of carry convexity and certainty, and you get to choose one or two out of those. So you don't get all three. And so if you think about the tail risk puts, the rolling tail risk puts, you have a lot of certainty, a lot of convexity, but you have negative carry. Sometimes if you think along the long volatility, you might improve the carry, but now you've reduced the certainty and you may keep some of the convexity. It really just
0: depends on the individual strategy. So when Chris Cole wrote the Dragon Portfolio paper, his was fifth in stocks, fifth in bonds, fifth long ball, fifth CTA or commodity trend, and fifth gold, if I'm not mistaken. One of the number one questions I received from people who read that paper, I don't know why they were asking me, why don't they just ask Chris, but they were asking me, what does it mean to be 25% long ball? right? For someone who doesn't understand options, they might interpret that as I'm going to take 25% of my money and spend that as the premium on the options. Someone a little more nuanced might say, oh no, that doesn't make sense. You're not going to, not on the premium, you want the notional coverage, which might make sense for more explicit tail hedges, maybe less so with long vol where you're maybe talking about units of vega as your measure of exposure. So when you think about this portfolio again quarter stocks, quarter bonds, quarter long ball tail hedging, quarter CTA. What does that mean to be a quarter long ball? Like what's the sizing? Of course, you know how to ask the most difficult question
1: there A step back. The way to think about it in general, like if you maybe heard like March 6th Spitznagel or Universal Lab talk about their tail risk book is a lot of times they'll say, this allows you to be longer equity beta. So you're 97% long equity beta. And then you write a 3% check every year for that premium. But essentially what I would argue is that means you're 97% long equity beta, 97% long ball or tail risk. Like, And so that book is really 97.97 philosophically, even though you're only putting up 3% of the premium. What I'm getting at that you're hinting at is the hard part is that when we start talking about futures, options, derivatives, is the convexity of those instruments. And it's really hard to toggle what that convexity is. And so, like you said, when we say 25%, it's much more almost philosophical, or we could get into notional and nominal exposures. But like you're saying, you could start by maybe toggling it to your deltas, right? And having that attachment point, you could use Vega, you can use Gamma, you can use all these things, but none of them are going to be a perfect proxy because you don't know what the future event or its path dependencies look like. Are we coming from a low vol environment to a high vol environment? Are we coming from a media vol environment? What is that? Is there an echo of volatility where an event has happened in the last two years? You can never be certain of those path dependencies. So this is what makes long volatility and tailrest these sorts of things incredibly difficult. As I've joked with some of our friends, you can never go full quant. Like You can't plug this into a sharp ratio. It just doesn't work that way. And everybody likes all the math and science for the construction. But this is where the art really comes in. And because there's so many path dependencies to a sell off, this is why we believe in ensemble approaches to make sure we capture that meat of that move if it only happens once every five to 10 years. It's one thing to be able to put this is what's interesting about the flip side of when you're using options is like right now you could probably, I mean, obviously with bonds, you know what your return's going to be. Stocks, everybody can give you an estimate of the return's going to be, but they don't know what their left tail is. They don't know what the drawdown side is. But then you completely flip that when you're talking about long volatility. We know exactly what our premium bleed is, but we have no idea what the exponential return is going to be when the crisis happens. And more importantly, the trick is what you're monetizing heuristics to make sure you monetize it properly. And that's incredibly difficult.
0: Well, talk a little bit about the ensemble approach you take. Because I think one of the unique things about your fund is you really think through diversification from multiple levels in a way that I deeply appreciate because it's not just asset allocation, it's process diversification, it's time diversification. That process diversification really rings true in that long ball tail hedging sleeve. Talk to me a little bit about the manager selection process and how you think about putting them all together. Yeah. For
1: example, in our long volatility, we have 15 managers at the point. And the idea around that is we want to bring institutional quality portfolio construction down to accredited retail investors. It's kind of never been done before. So it's a blue ocean for us that we were happy to tackle because we were worried about our friends and family and protecting their life savings. But part of that, that maybe people don't appreciate on other sides of the book, whether they're just value investors or whatever... <laughs> is on the institutional side of the space, managers have very, very niche strategies, especially in volatility. This is why we allocate to 15 managers. And the way I think about constructing the book in general is when you're dealing with optionality, long options or tail risk, is you primarily just want to be buying options. And that's the bulk of our book because you know what your bleed is. You know what your premium is going to be. You don't know what your return is going to be. So the bulk of the book is just buying options and we're going with managers that do that. But the way we think about that book is is the paths of moneyness. So we're at the money, out of the money, deep out of the money, or maybe extremely deep out of the money, which I've never actually heard anybody say before. But that's the way we think about covering the different paths of moneyness there. And we try to overlay and overlap them. We still tell our clients that anything less than a 20% drawdown is just Exorbitantly expensive to cover, so we don't cover that. So anything less than ten percent is just noise to us. Just to so, clarify, it's not twenty percent of the portfolio; it's twenty percent of the S and P. Yeah, thank you. The S and P drawdowns of negative twenty percent. If you're trying to really hedge against that negative five or negative ten percent drawdown S and P, it's going to be really expensive. The premium is going to be higher. We're going to have a lot of bleed there. So even though we have managers that are doing at the money, just slightly out of the money. It's just about overlaying, overlapping that Venn diagram to make sure we capture that path of moneyness. Because once again, it's it's very easy to put options traded on. That's what I think a lot of DIY traders are learning. Very easy to put these structures on. The question is, how do you monetize them? How do you roll them, whether it's the a second leg down or not? And so that's part of the way we look at it is the path of moneyness. And then what are the different monetization heuristics? And we like to diversify those as well. Because once again, we're just trying to get a beta-like return from this asset class and make sure we capture the meat of that move. So within the bulk of the portfolio is just long optionality. So then the question becomes, where does that get hurt? Behaviorally, people aren't willing to hold like tail risk as we saw with Kelper's cutting it at the last minute. And it's understandable. They don't like that line item or they don't think about the emergent portfolio effects of having tail risk or long volatility in their book. So you know that premium exists, so the way we try to manage that premium a little bit is we use volatility relative value traders. They're doing a lot of pairs trades between the S&P and the VIX or VIX calendars. And the idea there is any sort of pairs trades essentially mean reverting or short volatility or implicitly short volatility, but we try to use that to pay for the premium of the options. But we also look for vol relative value managers that are like essentially like buying the wings or they like can be long vol if vol really picks up or they can shift pretty quickly. So that's the ones we look at in there. And then the third problem you have is, like I referenced the second leg down, if March 2020 happens and implied volatility dramatically expands to roll those options, the premium is going to be exorbitantly high. So what we also added is what we call short-term intraday trend following on the futures indices around the world. And the idea is that with those Delta One instruments, you could just go directionally correct, and you don't have to pay up for that implied volatility. So we're using the options world, we're using futures world, we're using VIX world to have a lot of differentiation across the book and trying to cover as many path
0: dependencies as we possibly can. So something you said earlier is that tail hedging is really this balance of choices, this triangle between convexity, certainty, and cost, right? And it's a choose two, the other gets set for you. As you're talking about this ensemble trying to cover more path dependencies, it sounds to me like you're increasing the certainty in many ways, which is going to have to either come at a cost of cost or convexity. So I guess my somewhat pointed question to you would be, how do you avoid the case where this ensemble really just ends up expensively hedging nothing?
1: That's a fair point. And I think that's one of the questions that keeps me up at night. But in essence, as you add diversification, what you're getting at is you're reducing variance. So one could argue that you could start increasing the implicit leverage of that portfolio to make sure you capture it. Like I said, it keeps me up at night, but what doesn't necessarily keep me up at night is if I think about, we limit the exposures to ball relative value, and we limit the exposure to the intraday trend following, and we keep and enhance that exposure to the long volatility part of the book or the tail risk. So there's so much convexity at that sort of the book, we're using like the others to hopefully help reduce that carry during a risk on cycle. And so there's this beautiful trade-off in my mind of, the other parts of the book don't affect the convexity of those put options. You still have those completely on the books, but the idea is over time we want our portfolio to be fairly uncorrelated during risk-on, and then we want correlations to converge to negative one and risk-off. And we've seen this kind of happen across our managers before. That creates a beautiful diversification effect of when you're rebalancing during risk-on to help like, reduce those costs that they carry. But we still try to make sure the bulk of the book has that explosive optionality to it, and that should help overcome the other parts of the book in liquidity cascade. But there's no proof of that. That's what keeps me up at night. It's the art to creating a portfolio like this, but it's one of the things I constantly worry about. And then this goes back to your first question about, you know, notional or nominal exposures, are you trying to Vega, are you trying Delta? What are you doing is, you know, we overlay and overlap a lot of those exposures. So we don't mind using some of the implicit leverage you can get and create a much more, maybe a little bit higher of a notional or nominal effect across the portfolio.
0: You talked a bit about the fact that a lot of liquidity ends up getting recycled into the S&P. So liquidity gets hit in other areas of the market complex and all that hedging pressure ends up back in the S&P. But do you ever utilize options on other asset classes or hedges on other asset classes, either taking the basis risk or as an explicit hedge to other areas of, of your book or other areas of entrepreneurial risk? Yes and yes. So the idea is during a risk on cycle, That explosivity
1: starts to build up in the SP 500 if we go from risk on to risk off, as we saw going from 2019 to 2020. So you can capture a lot of that global liquidity. That's when it's really capturable in the SP 500. But after that, if you have a second or third leg down, everybody's already, after the flood, is paying up for that premium insurance. So you actually need to use some cross asset volatility. You want to be getting out into rates fall, into FX fall, into commodity fall. But at the same time, the vast majority of our clients, the bulk of their portfolios are tied to SP 500. And going back to the way we think about philosophically as an entrepreneur is your business is implicitly tied to S&P 500 or liquidity in markets. So I've never understood why entrepreneurs, if they have any savings left over, they can't plow back in their business, people put them in S&P 500. Now they're levered long S&P or levered long risk on or levered long credit. So the way we think about it is like you have to have more of that long volatility on the book to kind of offset a bit of those risks. So we have to then tie the bulk of the portfolio to the S&P 500 because that's where our clients have exposure. That's also where we have exposure internally at the Cockroach Fund. But we do sprinkle in a little of that cross asset ball. Not a lot, but a little bit. Because like you said, after March 2020, that implied volatility makes it pretty expensive to be on the S&P vol, or as we saw in 2022, which we've completely expected, is if you have a slow dripping drawdown, and vol, I think in 2022, it was at 25.6. You can correct me if I'm wrong, that was the average. And what that really means is is expected moves of 1.6% a day up or down. So if the market's dripping down at like half a percent or 1%, that's perfectly in line with any variance metrics. And so those are the other things you have to worry about is like, what does that slow drip down look like as well? And so you're trying to cover as many of those path dependencies as possible. And that's why you may need to take a little bit of basis risk outside the S&P, but you don't want it too much a part of the book. But also, you know, you are we talking listed exchanges, OTC, is the contracts? Like there's a lot of different pieces and parts of the way you construct these books. And you have to wor- look about your holistic risks across the
0: book. You mentioned a couple of times now the importance of monetization in the tail hedging process. Given that you're hiring managers to run these strategies for you, you have 15 sub-advisors in this sleeve, how does that waterfall of cash flow ultimately work across the portfolio? How are you expecting them to monetize? What sort of instructions do you give them? And then what do you expect to do with the cash as it comes back to you? So we, we kind of reverse engineer it. I just try to really understand
1: the niche that our managers fulfill and what their strategy entails. We don't try to tell them how to trade. This is their expertise. This is what their team does. So we just try to really understand what they do. And then, like I said, we try to overlay and overlap these different monetization heuristics because it's interesting, like classical tail risk, if you have that deep out of the money protection, we've mainly only seen three, some could argue up to five events in the last 30, 40 years as most traders have been around. But just because somebody's monetized it well the last three to five times, that's not statistically significant. You know, you can't count on that. So we have some of those, you know, we overlay that part of the book. But we have other managers that will monetize on an intraweekly basis, or sometimes an interdaily basis. So once again, we're using an ensemble approach to trunch out the monetizations to make sure we capture a lot of that move. Now, we started with our long volatility fund because we didn't feel people had access to that sort of thing, but it was always in service to our overarching cockroach fund and that total portfolio solution. So what that does is that forces people implicitly to rebalance. So take as an example, March 2020, markets sell off, your long volatility book is up, your S&P is down. April 1st, nobody was looking to rebalance and put more money into equities. We have a forced rebalancing function on the first of the month to force you to buy those equities at a lower net point. This is what allows you to compound wealth much more effectively and efficiently over the long run, is the forced rebalancing period. That's our only form of timing, is that forced rebalancing. And But then throughout the month or throughout the years, I don't tell my managers how to trade. I don't try to force their monetizations. I just try to understand the way they monetize. And then we try to recycle that cash throughout the rest of the book and just rebalance across all the different asset classes.
0: Continuing along the asset allocation pie, you mentioned that you replace gold with an ensemble of CTAs. So let's just start with the why. What do you think Harry Brown got maybe wrong, but if I could be so bold with using just gold and and why do you think an ensemble of CTAs is a better choice? Unfortunately, Harry's not here for us to question him, but I think it was
1: more efficiency of portfolio construction in the early 70s. Like, what could you get access to? Like, as you know, CTS were around then, but I'm not sure if you could construct a portfolio with them. And he was maybe writing a book about the ways that the average person could build a permanent portfolio. So maybe that's part of it. Like I said, the hard part about gold is like, it does have an inflation hedge over century-long or millennia long cycles, but in intervening years, it may not do well. Like we saw in March of 2020, everybody's desperate for cash. So they throw the baby out with the bathwater and gold gets sold off in March of 2020. And if that's your hedge, that's your hedge. So that's why I just think if you think about everything I'm saying from ensemble approaches and the way we look at markets is like trying to, I try to say we don't optimize portfolios, we try to build the least shitty portfolio. And I think that gold is an example of that where that's one path dependency for inflation. Where if I work with CTAs, with commodity trading advisors, and we try to find ones that are still commodity heavy, and we can get in that if you want. but the idea is they can trade upwards of 80 commodity markets. So you have a lot more path dependencies to monetize in an inflationary environment than just a singular path dependency with gold. We also still hold in our cockroach portfolio, we have what we call our fiat hedge book. That's a little bit of gold and a tiny bit of cryptocurrencies. And the idea is like, what if we have truly cataclysmic events, diaspora, as the market shut down, You know, we have a little bit of physical gold and a little bit of crypto in
0: there and that sort of thing. It's also a way to rebalance as well. There were a large number of papers published in the last year that identified that CTAs do seem to do just as well as many commodities during inflationary cycles. But I think there's an important aspect of thinking about gold as an inflationary hedge is what it comes down to what's the source of inflation, right? Is it monetary inflation? Is it economic supply and demand driven inflation? And all those seem to play out in different asset classes in different ways that gives CTAs perhaps the flexibility to exploit them, whether going long or short certain currencies, long or short certain commodities, long or short rates. But as a category, right, CTAs are notoriously broad. So it's wonderful in concept that CTAs have all this flexibility. But when you look at the actual performance year to year, you can have a stellar year for the average CTA and just happen to choose the one who does incredibly poorly, whether it's because of certain signals or the time horizon they trade or the asset classes or their portfolio construction methodology. So I'm curious as to what is your process for thinking through manager selection, given that problem? Well, you and I end up both talking to institutions that call us
1: all the time to pick up Reagan. And my least favorite question they always ask is like, tell me who the best manager in Ball is or tell me who the best manager in CTA is. And to me, they're asking the wrong question. To think you can pick them a priority is just nonsensical. And then, you know, a lot of people show the dispersion across CTAs every year. It can be massive. And then whatever was on the bottom of those league tables would maybe be at the top the next year and vice versa. And so it goes all the way back to me to like market wizards as a teenager. I've been fascinated with CTAs. But once again, it's about the dispersion of returns. So the way we think about constructing an ensemble of CTAs is we look at their timing, their look back and their trading time horizons. We go short, medium, long term. And we kind of tranche them out that way. And that's typically where you're going to harness a lot of that dispersion. So short-term managers probably did well in March of 2020. Medium probably got whipsawed. Long-term, may not even been affected at all. It just depends on what the timing of the rebalance is. And then vice versa in you know March of 2008, Q3 going into Q4 – the short-term managers maybe didn't do well, long-term managers did well. It just depends, like you're saying, like the speed of the sell-off, the move, how are asset classes moving? Are they trending? Are they mean reverting? It really depends. So we think about charging them out, first of all, by short, medium, long-term lookbacks. We also try to still source managers that are trading at least 25 to 50% commodities, which is kind of getting rarer and rarer because a lot of the firms of the business went for an AUM gathering exercise. And as soon as you start managing five, 10 billion plus, they're limiting the capacity constraints to the smaller markets and commodities. So we still try to find a lot of those managers, but you don't want to go hundred percent commodities because if you have a little bit of FX and a little bit of the financials in there, it helps balance out the book a little bit. So we use short, medium, long-term. And then within those, we try to find differentiated managers that maybe maybe they're ball targeting, maybe they're not. Maybe they're breakout. Maybe they're moving average crossover. Maybe they have different monetization heuristics. As so once again, it's like, as we build that book, as AUM grows, and I'll be able to add more and more diversification there. Once again, it's just trying to harness that dispersion and create much more of a beta signal from that return. We're never going to be the best. We're never going to be the worst, but we'll have it, you know, over time, which is the key to our portfolio always, is to, over time, we'll always probably be in that highest quartile over time. That's the idea. Least shitty portfolio.
0: Managed features and CTA has largely become synonymous with trend following. And that's because trend following has been the primary signal within that category going back to the seventies. But it, it is by no means the only signal that gets incorporated. There's plenty of managers, particularly over the last decade who struggled with trend following that have looked to incorporate things like carry seasonality, mean reversion, relative value, economic signals, right? You're talking about some of them trading 50 plus futures markets. There's a absolute breadth of different types of signals that they can implement here. Trend following just being one of them. So far, you've only spoken about trend following. How do you think about the incorporation of those other styles of strategy? Yeah, there's a lot of things like you and I always talk about like when people try to
1: attack hedge funds, we're like, that's the same as attacking LLCs. It doesn't matter. Same with CTA space, Everybody just assumes trend following. But there's a lot of other cool stuff in there. There's, there's like ag spread trading. There's carry trading on things outside of FX and just term structure carry. A lot of interesting things. What you are hinting at too is like a lot of the managers that were pure trend followers over the last few decades have moved into a lot more like mean reverting strategies to help balance their book or help improve their carry, you know, when it's not an opportune time for trend following. So once again, as a capital allocator, you have to know and understand your managers, what they're trading, what their strategies are to make sure you may have these implicit short volatility or mean reverting trades in their book. But it's like what percentage, how much you have to really dig into that. But in general, we just like to have just trend following on commodities primarily. And that's the bulk of the book. But then if they have other interesting strategies, I might put them in the other parts of the book. I might look at putting those in that bond portfolio for income, you know, if it's an ag spread trade or some sort of carry trade. One could argue that the carry trades should be maybe in the stock part of the portfolio because like the correlations are very high, right? It's like a super powered stock portfolio if you're really just writing that rule yield. So it's really about digging in to see what they do and then thinking deeply about where do you put that in your overarching book and what is the emergent portfolio effect and putting those in the different sleeves.
0: Portfolio design always requires some heroic assumptions about correlations and volatilities, or or maybe depending on how quantitative you want to get risk factor sensitivities of the different components of the portfolio. What assumptions are you ultimately making in your design? we try to have
1: very simple, robust assumptions. As I started with, we think about offense plus defense. That's how we split out our book. Fancier words for that are, are short volatility versus long volatility. Most people don't realize that Like usually most people's portfolio are 95 to 99% implicitly short volatility. They have no defense in their book. But we try to simplify as like half our book is offense, half our book as defense. That's the way we try to view the world. But like you could start breaking those down into that short ball versus long ball. Then I said, we'd look at it, the four quadrant model is one way to look at it as well. And then you just said about correlations. Now, some large hedge funds that shall remain nameless say you could find 16 uncorrelated bets. I'm not so certain of that. I think they all, you know, when push comes to shove and a liquidity event happens, there's probably only two correlations or three. Like, that's what you're really dealing with. So I think about almost all risk on asset classes, whether that's stocks, bonds, PE, VC, real estate... All those things are risk-on. Their correlations go to one. Everybody's heard that a million times. And then you could build in structurally negatively correlated asset classes with tail risk and long volatility. And then I would argue uncorrelated is your CTAs historically. Now, will that help in the future? We don't know. But as you know, with uncorrelation means that it could be correlated with your equities, you know, 50% of the time. So to us, that's the correlation matrix we worry about. Like Because at the end of the day, I actually don't believe... In volatility as a measure of risk. I don't believe in correlations because, like, oh, this is your correlation. All right, tell me when the bookends are and what kind of environment will we be in during that period. Everybody can have these false beliefs about correlations that make them take on an enormous amount of risk. And then they get absolutely smoked when we have a regime shift. So I don't think you would count on correlations. I don't think you can count on volatility or variance in a sharp ratio for a measure of risk. To us, it's about what's my return divided by my max drawdown. And you never know what your max drawdown is because your biggest one's always ahead of you. So what I'm really trying to point out is like, we're all kind of flying blind a little bit. So you want to have really simple, robust heuristics in your portfolio construction methodology.
0: Whenever I talk to anyone about all-weather investing, there's always something in the back of my mind that says, look, you can't have a portfolio that eliminates all risk. Or you can, but sort of the taking it to... It's a logical conclusion, you just end up with a very expensive risk free rate in theory. So, where do you think the biggest risks of your design are? You know, what risk is an investor taking on with the portfolio in order to earn a return?
1: Yeah, I think you and I talk about this all the time. It's like, The more broadly diversified you are, the more you're reducing that variance and the more you're reducing your return inevitably. But hopefully you're reducing the variance and drawdown. So if you want, you can use a little bit of implicit leverage to create kind of whatever return profile you want. The other part where I tend to push back is what I brought up earlier is like a lot of those risk on assets are very linear. And when you combine those with their defensive assets, they're convex, you kind of have this beautiful pairing that's not quite the same. Because if you paired linear and linear, right, your netting effect should be zero. And as you would know, there's no arbitrage condition, no free or lunch, but I think there's an, an interesting emergent portfolio phenomenon when you combine linear and non-linear assets and you rebalance frequently.
0: Talk about that leverage level a little, because to your point, when you add a bunch of diversifying asset classes together, the vol drops way down. Hopefully your sharp ratio goes up. But often when you start packaging it to make it interesting, you need to add some juice. And finding the right leverage level can actually be a challenging process. One of my favorite exercises is you just take the S&P 500 and you run it at different leverage levels and you plot the compound growth rate versus the leverage level. And you get this hump, right? At the peak is, in theory, the leverage level that maximized your compound growth rate. Before the peak, you weren't taking on enough risk. After the peak, you took on too much risk. Most of us want to sit safely to the left of the peak But you do that exercise over a, call it 30, 40-year period, and it might say, well, actually, the S&P should be levered up 1.8 times. Well, you can find a two-year period that if you levered up the S&P 1.8 times, you basically be broke, right? So your long-term leverage doesn't necessarily match the short-term. Curious how you think about identifying that leverage level in a robust way. Man, I think you just pointed
1: out how difficult it is. But part of what you're saying with like Kelly or optimized leverage or half Kelly or whatever it is, is like you're competing forces. When you're thinking about leveraging up just S&P, that's one part of the problem. But if you start adding in negatively correlated assets or uncorrelated assets, now you have an integrative complexity problem that's even more difficult to model. And so, like, how do you figure out what the leverage is in that equation? It's exceedingly difficult. And I understand why most people are unwilling or don't know how to do it, because this is more getting into the art versus the science. The way we think about it is if we ran an unlevered portfolio, I think it's a great portfolio because to me it's like if you can hold all the world's asset classes and rebalance, I don't care what anybody tells me CPI or the inflation rate is. To me, that's like the global inflation rate and then hopefully the rebalancing effect helps you hurdle that inflation rate. But people being people we levered it up a little bit to make it a little bit sexier, right? But at the same time, we're able to do that very efficiently using futures and options instead of like borrowing debt to do so. So we like to implicitly do that for our clients. So then they have more tools in their toolkit. So if I've levered it up 2X and our our broad portfolio is at 2.2X, if you add in the fiat hedges, it's the idea then when clients we work with, you know, a lot of them are going to have private assets. And I think there's this beautiful balance of liquid and illiquid asset classes. So Instead of just giving us 100% of your cash on if it's levered up two times, you can give us 50% of your cash and then still use 50% of your cash to go out and seek out all these private assets like you know real estate with deterministic cash flows. And there's a beautiful symbiosis between those two. Is that the right amount of leverage? Is that the optimal amount of leverage? No, I'm not certain. You and I have talked about the past. like If we even went half to full Kelly, we'd probably be anywhere from the 4 to 8x leverage range. Like, how nervous does that make you? Because what you referenced at the beginning is figuring out that perfect leverage, which is why, bless my friends that love Kelly, like, I don't think it's applicable to non nergotic systems like we're dealing with, because you have a Kierkegaardian rear view problem. You're only looking at this past data set to predict the future volatility and correlations and your leverage. And that makes me nervous, because you're never going to have a large enough data set, and it's garbage in, kind of garbage out. And this is, once again, going back to art versus the science is sure, I could put in 100 years of data, but if the world's changed and I can see something that doesn't exist in that
0: data set, I might have to lower that leverage as we saw Jim Simons do in the past. I think we just witnessed the first time in history that fractional Kelly, ergodicity, and Kierkegaard were all used in the same sentence. So that was was impressive. I don't want to let you totally off the hook here because there is the problem I have with the way you've designed things. Okay, please. Which is that at the high level... Any hedge fund of funds, or most hedge fund of funds, have to deal with this basket of options problem, which is a cost problem. You are paying managers who are getting a carry. And what's happening is that you can have a situation where you, the net portfolio can be down. The client can be underwater, but they're still paying carry fees, performance fees to the underlying managers that are actually up. And this can be a hard drag to overcome over the long run. And I know it's something you've thought long and hard about, and I'm certain if you could easily eliminate it, you would. I'm curious, again, how you think about that affects the returns of the portfolio and how you think about having to design around that. And there's so many things we think about that. And yeah, if we could figure out a ways to
1: reduce fees, reduce all of these things, we would. And we're always trying to stuff it in different vehicles, but there's all sorts of regulatory problems in trying to to put any of these things, especially into Act 40 funds. But at the same time, all I care about is what my net return is. And I'm a huge fan of Mar Ratio, which is your return divided by your max drawdown over time. That's the thing that you can't really cheat, where a lot of the other things you can cheat pretty well. Part of that, though, is like, what is my net return? It's fascinating to me that the low fee mantra will get people to put their money in an S&P 500 index. And just for, just for argument's sake, let's say it's an 8% return with a 50 to 60% max drawdown. They only talk about the nominal returns. They don't talk about the max drawdown. So if you build a portfolio that's maybe robust and has these correlations that are pretty robust as well, but let's just say arguably you had like a six percent return with a ten percent drawdown. To me, that's a far superior portfolio because I come from the absolute return world and it's like, what can you eat at the end of the day? Like I don't care about the relative value world. If like if I'm down forty five percent but the S P is down fifty and I like and I try to claim that's five percent outperformance, that's pretty ridiculous. Because behaviorally, people are likely to sell on that low, crystallize those losses, and then be so fearful they don't get back in. You and I have seen it time and time again. The behavioral or babysitter tax of doing stupid things through their portfolio can absolutely destroy your compounding and your family's savings. So by reducing that volatility tax, even after net of all fees, it's a much better way to compound your wealth over time because you never know when you're going to need it most. The other argument against us is that our comps would maybe be pod shops, Right. And so they use all these hedge fund managers. They bring them into a pod shop. They give them much more salaries with a little bit of bonus. So they're saying they're reducing that fee structure. I think they have a negative selection bias. Like to me, I'm looking for managers that still have that entrepreneurial itch. They want to eat what they kill. And so I think net net, after you get down to their returns versus our fees after returns, you're probably going to end up in about the same spot.
0: Now, you originally designed this idea as an entrepreneurial hedge. We discussed that way at the beginning. So I want to circle back to it. How do you think that this portfolio should be used? What's its best use case for investors? So there's two ways to think about this. One
1: is, you know, I've tried to talk to many businesses or even DAOs or anything about their their internal balance sheet, right? Like why hold cash? And you know, our buddy Mebs had all these conversations as well. Like even cash can have a 17% drawdown historically. So a robust portfolio delevered would create an amazing cash balance on your system if you think about it, especially if you're doing business globally. So that's one way I think about it is like an internal balance sheet at any sort of corporation. The second one is, as I said at the beginning, is I can't believe entrepreneurs put their money into like stocks and bonds. Now they're just increasing their leverage to risk on scenarios. What they really need to be doing is hedging for risk off. So to me, if an entrepreneur has any savings left over that they cannot put back in their business, that should go into purely defensive strategies. And well, like I said at the beginning, what that does is it allows you to take much more idiosyncratic risk and really push as hard as you can on your entrepreneurial advantages and still hedging your global liquidity cascade risk. You know, Is there some basis risk there? Is it perfect? No, but it's at least you have defensive strategies in your portfolio and now you're not just leverage long on
0: risk on strategies. Sort of push on that last piece Does that mean to you, for example, taking cockroach and pulling out the equity component? Is everything else considered the defensive that for an entrepreneur, it's almost as if their business is replacing the equity component? Yeah. What we think about is philosophically, we try to put 99% of our clients in the
1: cockroach portfolio because it's the one that they can behaviorally hold over the long-term. But we work with clients and they want to pull out the sleeves. So you can get just the long volatility and terrorist sleeve. You can get just the CTA sleeve. So you can build out your defensive side of that portfolio so that, yes, that's the way I would replace it. I would actually replace both the stocks and bonds with my business and that I would only want to be in defensive strategies like long volatility, terrorist, commodity trend, maybe hold a little bit of physical gold potentially a, bit, a tiny bit of cryptocurrencies for any of those cataclysmic events. But if I'm a business owner, I want only negatively correlated defensive strategies to help offset my risk when shit hits
0: the fan. I can't end this podcast without asking you two more questions. One, I think, is just sort of a fun curiosity about the fund. You guys have actually gone so far as to think about purchasing physical gold and storing it around the country when it comes to sort of cataclysmic events. Walk me through the thinking there, things like real estate, for example, potential things you've looked into. Like, how do you think about making this truly cataclysm proof for your clients? As preternaturally naturally long
1: ball guys, we think about a lot of things even outside of markets. Cause like, I think it's easy to hedge your market risk, but what happens if like markets don't shut down? You know, historically what happens to war, diaspora, those sorts of things. And that's why we think about physical gold. If I'm honest, before the pandemic, we actually looked at global segregated physical gold storage. But we found during the pandemic, you couldn't get to that gold or it couldn't get sent to you. So I think now we're more okay with a, a few different domestic locations on the East Coast and and, and Texas and, and trying to diversify that way. But the idea there is like we've seen historically during war periods where markets have shut down for weeks or months at a time. So what happens, you don't need much stored physical gold for that to have quite an exponential return in those sorts of environments. It's also why we have a tiny bit of cryptocurrencies as well, just because, like, like I said, I don't know what gold is. I still don't know what cryptocurrencies are. I've been studying them for a decade. But if like, the maxis are right, what's the exponential return? That, that idea to of get off zero, like 1%, 2% of your portfolio, is it going to be 50x if market shut down? I don't know. But if they're right, you know, that's where we're trying to hedge all these exogenous risks. The other thing that's nice about real estate, especially we're working on like cockroach 2.0, where we can have like physical farmland, timberland, all sorts of an ensemble of exposure to real estate. Because as we know, that's the other huge asset class that most people don't have exposure to. And it's not mark-to-market every day. So that has an interesting component to it when you combine it with a mark-to-market liquid portfolio. And how does that balance kind of work over time? Even with our managers, we try to really be in just the listed exchanges so we don't have counterparty risk. But like i said what happens if the listed exchange shuts down you know we haven't quite seen that yet so we worry about maybe we do want some managers with some otc risk and some ISDA contracts with you know counterparties not a lot but like maybe that's a little bit better than having it all on listed exchanges and then you have to worry about like your bankers you have to worry about all these things outside of the markets is i think where your exposure really lies and not necessarily within the financial markets that we trade
0: if you're at the point you're having to go get the physical gold Is there arguably not a more convex trade in storing guns or food? So we talk about this all the time. It's like, if you get to
1: guns and butter time, I mean, is the gold really going to matter? I don't know. But historically, the guns and butter time have been these interval points. And then we kind of mean revert back to having financial markets. So what's the value of gold after that mean reversion, right? Like, you know, you're at least sitting on something of value, even if markets never reopen, allegedly, historically, 2000 years of history, you should have something of value. Will it be a value moving forward? I don't know either. But that's that
0: broad diversification where we, we can't predict
1: the future. We're trying to just do our best with what we have. Well, buddy, I
0: think my biggest takeaway from this episode is that somewhere in Texas, you buried some gold <laughs> and I'm going to go find it. So this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me.